Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. A wonderful and a great and a bunch of... All right, cool. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you want to turn there, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the seat in front of you. You can grab that. And I'll even give you the cheater. It's page 992 in those Bibles, so you can do that. We're in a series through the book of 1 Timothy. Now, to back up, we went through a gospel. We had just come out of a season spending Sunday nights kind of studying the church in Acts, and then we worked through a gospel here, and then we moved into the early letters of Paul. So Paul the Apostle, who writes half the New Testament, or an amount of books at least, he writes more than others, not necessarily in pages, but writes a lot of the New Testament, becomes probably, other than Jesus, becomes probably the most well-known leader in the first century, him and then likely Peter as well. Paul becomes a major part of the gospel moving beyond its Jewish roots out into the non-Jewish world. And in his early gospels, what we spent the last four months doing, he is embedding the gospel message into the church. He's over and over again, spends his time writing letters like Ephesians, where he spends the first three chapters of Ephesians really unpacking the gospel to them. And then the second three chapters, the final three chapters, taking the gospel and saying, here's how you live it out in life. Here's the gospel. Here's how you live it out in life. And they're really saturated with gospel, with how to live in the gospel. What is the gospel? What Jesus has accomplished for us. As he moves to his middle writings, he's dealing with struggles that are unique to those churches, things like the church in Thessalonica that's being persecuted. His later letters are written to two men, two books written to Timothy, one to Titus, one Titus is in Crete, Timothy, both letters are written to him while he is in Ephesus, pastoring these churches, and he writes to them something specific. We're going to see some passages out of both of those books today, but he writes to them about putting the church in order. He moves from make, making sure that we establish the gospel well into those communities to shifting to making sure we establish the local church well. And you need to hear this, the, the local church is the plan. There's no other plan, the local church is the plan. That local church communities, the bodies, the church, like Generations Church, are the plan to get the gospel to the next generation. Jesus embedded in the gospel in his disciples whom he sent out, being sent out making them apostles, that's what that means. And he made sure that they would establish churches. And so this is what he's talking about. So the gospel message, simply, that God created you and loves you, designed you. There is a way you were made to be. And, and, and a summary of that is you were made to be a worshiper of God. That doesn't just mean like when we sing songs, but that your lives will bring glory to God. That you were created for that. You weren't created for your career. You weren't created for your family. You weren't created for football. You weren't created, sorry, Casey. You weren't created for all those things, right? You were made to be a worshiper of God. When we choose anything else and put anything else in that place where only God should be, we make it an idol. And as Calvin famously said 500 years ago, our hearts are like factories for idols. They just churn out things that we give our heart to all the time. And that's what we call sin. When we do something other than what God has called us to, that we sin. When we choose our own way, we are choosing to not go God's way. 
And because of that, humanity has inherited sin and then joins in the sin. It's not like we got here and all of a sudden did it right, right? That we inherit guilt and then we add to the guilt of the world. And because of that, we could never earn our way or be good enough or be holy enough to please God. And so God came to us. God became flesh. Jesus came to earth. God became human. And that he lived the life that you and I are called to live, always giving glory and worship to God. That he did that in ways, and always, and, and we don't. And so then he went and traded his life on the cross. That he would give his life, that God, the creator of all things, would somehow die on a cross. The very son of God, hanging between heaven and earth, our mediator between sinful humanity and a holy God. And so Jesus gives his life to forgive our sin, is laid in a grave to prove his death, and then three days later resurrects from the grave, giving us new life. And unfortunately, the modern-day gospel stops with forgiveness. Well, if you just say this prayer, by the way, I'm still looking for that prayer in the Bible, just say this thing, right? Go down on the field at a crusade. You just do this, then you can go to heaven. And we miss everything between forgiveness and heaven. And I'm not saying that there isn't forgiveness. We just said that. And yes, heaven for sure. But Jesus rose from the grave to give us new life today. That he calls us to something. That he calls us to being followers of Jesus. That we become the church. When you're baptized, you're baptized into the church, a family, a body. And that you become a part of something something that we're all called to be a part of, that you can't faithfully follow Jesus apart from a local church. This is how it's made. This isn't an option. This is the plan. Now, here's the problem. So many of us, so many modern-day Christians, somehow, some way, maybe it's because of the broken way the modern gospel is shared, forgiveness, heaven, missing this, so many of us settle for mediocrity in our faith. Now, you don't settle for mediocrity anywhere else, right? If you have a football team that you like, you don't like it if they're in last place. You don't like it if they're in third place, right? <laughs> oh, the good old days when the Cowboys could actually get to third place. You know, so anyhow, whatever, right? Why will we settle for mediocrity in our faith? So we put this on the screen, a call to maturity. We discourage mediocrity in almost all areas of life, and yet we readily accept being lukewarm in our faith. We're called to desire maturity and gospel growth. You're called to grow, to mature in your faith. We love infants. We've got babies in the other room. We've got little kids in the other room. But our expectation is that they will mature, Right? they don't, there's either a problem, a health issue, something slowing that or stopping that, or there's a problem, right? Here's how it says it in Hebrews 5. He writes to the church, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. The solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice 
to distinguish good from evil. You should be growing, maturing in your faith. You should be moving on. It's okay if you're brand new to Jesus. Being an infant isn't a put-down. It's true. We love infants. We love brand new believers. But we have expectation that we will grow into maturing believers. Make sense? Why do we settle for so little? All right. So here's where we are. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. Paul tees off, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, overseer is the word episkopos in Greek. It's also synonymous with the word for elder, which is presbyteros. There are two things, right? The one typically referring to age, but more maturity. The other showing a positional role. Episkopos, epi, right? Over. Skopos is the word where we get the word for scope, like a scope on a gun, or I can't think of a better example, so a scope on a gun, right? Something that is over a scope, over something, right? An overseer. That's what this is. And so when we look at an overseer or an elder, we see them as synonymous. By the way, we use the word pastor for like the job I have or the role I have. The office in the church is elder or overseer, right? Pastor is a word that means shepherd, Right, that we as elders should be shepherding the church. Right? And that's important. So he says, if anyone desires to be an overseer, an elder, he desires a noble task. Like, that's a good thing. You should desire to do that. If you play a sport, it is likely you want to get better. And on the field all the time are team captains. Those guys are better. They take their job serious. And where this we're looking at, we're looking at team captain, Right? Even though we use the metaphor shepherd, right? But remember, shepherd are still sheep themselves, right? That Christians, pastors, elders, all, again, metaphor Jesus used, sheep, his sheep, right? I know, people call people sheep today, and they're talking about followers. That's us, followers of Jesus. I'm okay with it, right? Shepherds, elders, overseers, those are mature sheep who work alongside the great shepherd, Jesus, to lead the church, the local church, not the generic church, the local church, right? If you desire that, you desire a noble task. He says, listen, it's a good thing. You should desire maturity. Now he's gonna go on and describe this. Let me define elders for you. So elders are men, we'll put this on the screen, whom God calls to lead and care for the church. They must be mature sheep who follow Jesus and function as shepherds over others. You with me, right? They are mature sheep who function as shepherds, team captain on the field, over the team, still part of the team. That's us as elders, right? So he's going to go on, he's going to define this. Now, therefore, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, I'm going to, that word there, husband of one woman, a one-woman man is what we talk about a lot. Now, before we get there, above reproach, that's kind of this catch-all phrase that just says this, you need to be mature, above reproach, right? Now, none of us are sinless. In fact, as we mature in our faith, we probably are aware of more sin. Fair, right? We kind of know more because we've learned more. You're like, oh, that thing? Yeah, it's not good either, right? So we should know more. But above reproach means you don't have something in your life that defines you far more than Jesus, right? That your life is defined by being a follower of Jesus. However that may look, flaws and all, 
but you're defined by being a follower of Jesus. You're above reproach. Somebody can't look at me and say, oh, John, Amaudi, John, those are your elders, right? Those guys, but their lives are defined by this, not Jesus. Like, they don't, we don't have that. It doesn't mean they're perfect guys. I'm not perfect, clearly. <laughs> Anyhow, so, uh, but, but we should be those kind of guys that are not, you can't charge with doing these grievous things that are so far away from Jesus, you can't see Jesus in us, right? Above reproach, and then it begins to define this. I'm going to use this phrase, one woman man, right? The word here for wife is used 11 times in this book, and it's not defined, it's not translated as wife most of the time. It's defined, or it's translated as woman. We're going to talk about that in a few passages, in a few verses later, right? doesn't change the meaning. I'm a one wife man or a one woman man. It's not talking about polygamy. It's not talking about, or it's not limited to polygamy. It's not limited to divorce. It's talking about being focused and committed to one woman, right? My, I'm committed to one woman and have been. She is, she is the, my, my childhood sweetheart, right? Like we dated in high school. There was this 10-year hiatus where I was an idiot, but then we got back together, right? We made it happen. She's put up with me then for 25 more years, right? But on one woman, man, right, that she is it, there's not a close second, right? There's no runners-up. It's Lisa, right? I think if you know me, you know that. One woman man. Now, I'm going to use that rather than just one wife because I want there's a consistency to the translation of this word. Since we've been using it, we're going to nerd out. Gynecos is the word that, that's where we get our word gynecologist from, right? A gynecologist is a, is a doctor to women and girls dealing with diseases that only affect women and girls, right? Not pregnancy, that's obstetrics. I can't talk, but that, right? To women, not just wives, but to women. That's where we get that word for that doctor. And that's what we're talking about, one woman man. That also means your spouse comes above your daughter's, right? One woman man. You never have a kid go, yeah, my parents just loved each other too much, right? we got lots of other stories. That's not one of them, right? All right, second half of verse 2. Same person, this above reproach, one woman man must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. So there is this kind of list of traits it's not a comprehensive list. We've talked about this before. When he has a list of sins, it's not all the sins. It's not even the worst sins. It's sins that are present. He's speaking to this community and saying, listen, these things need to be there. Here's what it needs to look like. And he gives these list of traits that kind of reflect Jesus to others that show a level of gospel maturity in these men. So he says a disciplined life. Or he says, sober-minded, self-controlled. I would say you must live a disciplined life right? That your life isn't marked by addiction or irrationality, but you are disciplined. You're, you control your life. Your life doesn't control you. Hospitable. This one's great. More ministry, more discipleship, more gospel relationship happens. Let me say that better. You pass on more about Jesus to other people by spending time with them than you do like this or in a small group, 
Hospitable isn't just inviting people into your house, it's inviting people into your lives. Right? I can teach more about being a husband if you just spend time with me than I can in a message, right? Or in a series, or in years of preaching. Like, you'll learn more as we just kind of hang out. Get a chance, we have a conference coming up, and I think we leave in a week, right? And one of the things I'm looking for is Alex and I, I'm not, we're staying in separate rooms so I can tolerate Alex and love him still at the end of this whole thing, but I'm looking forward to the time together. Oh, you're in the room, sorry. But I miss, I got to invite Joe too. I remember our last time we'd hang out. And more ministry is done. We'll say it's ministry is more caught than taught, right? It's more contagious as you get around that. Hospitable, willing to bring people into your life. Now, able to teach. This one is unique to elders only. So the men that God has called who rise this level of maturity, who we can see this calling, and who desire this noble task of helping being, you know, sheep slash shepherds in the church, they must be able to teach. Doesn't say preach, different word, teach, right? You must be able to teach life, gospel, scripture to others, right? I should reorder that. Scripture, gospel, life to others. You must be able to pass that on. When you're shepherding someone, they ask you, hey, so I've never been baptized. Is that important? You should be able to answer that, right? That's what it looks like to be an elder, able to teach. Most, I think all, of our elders lead community groups, right? They teach on a regular basis. Two out of four of us preach, right? My core job is that. But we share that. All our elders come up here and pray, pray for churches, pray for our community. All our elders have been leading our Sunday night prayer and worship time, leading the prayer portion of that. Last couple at the beach, the others here, tonight here, right? We lead that together, able to teach people how to pray even. Able to teach, that's unique to the elders. Verse three, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Drunkards are people that make, people that are under the influence, obviously, right? And so it's, it's not necessarily just defining that, but it's reminding of the role. Like, you can't be making decisions under the influence. That would go beyond drinking. Modern day, with the legalizing marijuana, the same idea, that if you allow yourself to be influenced by outside things, I know, you could say coffee or you could say whatever. You, you get my point. Things that would change your decision-making. Right? You can't be that. Not violent, but gentle, right? We can't beat people into following Jesus. I've tried. <laughs> right, Joe? Bar Joe. No, I'm teasing. We, we, you can't force people. I use these two as examples, not because it's true, because I love them. I love spending time with these guys, right? You can't force people. You can't beat people. You can't heavy-handed people into relationship quickly. And I say this because the, one of the two people are here. In all my time in ministry, right, in all my time in ministry, I've done a lot of counseling, a lot of, we close the door, we get after it in the office. And there was this one time about six years ago, we're trying not to make eye contact. So there's, there's one moment about six years ago, and after the door shut, I legitimately yelled for the next hour. I had to walk outside my office at the end and apologize to the rest of my staff. We were in the old offices in Los Al. I can say that today because both people are still in the church. They both know I love them, right? 
And they might tell you that they were spiritually hard of hearing and I elevated the level of volume for them. But if my ministry was defined like that, we'd have issues. I'm not sold that was the right way that night. We can laugh and joke about it today because we can all, we're all still here, right? But you've got to be not violent but gentle in your speech, not just your hands. Your heart needs to be gentle and not violent, right? Not quarrelsome. I want you to think social media right now. That's the way we see quarrelsome, right? Do you argue with people online for absolutely what I would say no reason? Most people would say for no reason. You're gaining no ground, right? Do you like to argue? Do you like to post provocative things that are just start trouble? That's quarrelsome. A lot of people talking to each other right now. That must have touched a nerve. We're not a lover of money, all right? You can't be a lover of money. You can't lover of money. You can't make money your goal, right? I know we all got to eat, but you can't be a lover of money. Someone who values money that much. In fact, Paul will go on in three chapters to make the famous quote, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? It's not money. Money is a neutral thing, right? My Jeep, a Harley, money, it's a neutral thing. You can idolize it. Or it can just be how I get to work, right? How you enjoy your Saturdays or whatever it is, right? Money is that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's neutral. But loving money is idolatry. You can't have that, Paul says. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Love this. I just, I want you to hear this. Love of wife, right, and how he manages his home, his children. Here's what I'll tell you right now. If a guy has a wife who is not a follower of Jesus, has kids who do not follow Jesus, he has no business being in church leadership. Either he's brand new to Jesus and he has no business in church leadership, or he's been around for a while and he's lost the... the, the, the the, the primary role that he has of being a shepherd in his own home to his wife and to his kids. Now, we don't have a lot of that necessarily because a lot of dudes are being led by their wives and their kids. We have the other problem. But an elder is one whose wife is well-loved, well-prioritized, and a follower of Jesus, and his kids are followers of Jesus and are submitted to the parents, right? If a guy doesn't raise his kids well, would you want him being your youth leader at church? No, why? You don't want him over your kids. He doesn't even manage his own kids. If he doesn't love his wife enough to prioritize her knowing Jesus, do you want him doing your marriage counseling? No. That man has no business in ministry. So I'm going to put this on the, on the screen. This is important. The reflection of a man's faith is his family. Men need to lovingly lead their wives and kids. This is all men. All men. Elders, especially. Men need to lovingly lead their wives and kids to Jesus before presuming to lead others. If the home is not right, a man has no business in ministry. No home is perfect. No perfect kids, no perfect wives, no perfect husbands. But the marker of that home is a loved wife who follows Jesus, loved children who follow Jesus and obey their parents. 
If a man can do that, and we can see that, and I can say this for sure about the three men that are my elders here, right? I can say they love their wives and they have raised good kids. All of them have raised good kids. I know, we're still raising Abby. We love you. Okay, so I get it, right? But the three adult kids, all stellar. Abby, amazing, right? There too, there too. I can see that in them, and it makes me want to put them over other families. I know they can walk alongside a marriage, walk alongside child raising. I know that because they've shown that, and they've prioritized it in their own homes. Credit to their wives as well, not just them, for sure. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil, shouldn't be a rookie Christian. Makes sense, right? The idea here is we tend to see this in in relationship to how long. The important part is how mature are they? Now, if they're super mature, even though they've only been a Christian for a short amount of time, still, wait, right? Paul also says, be slow to lay hands on people, right? Be slow. Be cautious. Hard to unring the bell if you've laid hands on people already, if you will, right? Sorry for the mix of metaphors, but verse 7, moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Reputation matters, right? That doesn't mean like if people don't like you because, you know, you're sober and don't go to a bar, or, you know, you're a Christian and you don't indulge in things daily. It doesn't mean if they hold that against you, but you're known as something that represents Jesus well. You should have a good reputation, right? You shouldn't be the obnoxious Christian that condemns everybody either. You should have a good reputation, right? Your reputation in your workplace or in your, your activities, the things you do outside, your home, your church, all of that, you should have a good reputation. Again, I would say this, look to social media. How do people present themselves on social media? It's a huge clue into what's inside their hearts. So verse 8, deacons likewise. So here's what we're going to do. Now he shifts to deacons, Okay, so elders, we said, are the spiritual leaders. They're mature sheep who help shepherd alongside and under Jesus, right? Shepherd the local church. Now, deacons, we'll put this on the screen. Deacons are the servant leaders in the church, caring for people and managing the church ministries and facilities, freeing up the elders to be shepherds. By the way, behind the scenes, things that you wouldn't necessarily know if you just show up on Sundays and and don't know, maybe some of the elders are deacons. These are the things that we are really, really investing in right now. What do our elders do? What do our deacons do? What do they not do, right? What is, how are they different? How do we, where does this fit versus this? And how does the staff serve both of them? And what do we do here, right? And who are our future elders and deacons, right? Especially as we qualify that and clarify that. Who else do we have? Who are those mature, mature sheep that can help us shepherd the others? Who are those servant leaders who love to come in and serve and, and, and keep the church moving in the direction that it needs to move. I, I just, you know, as, as Rob did a stellar presentation of who Matt is earlier, right? Coming in and just helping us take the facilities that this is our first face to most people that come here. This is our presentation to people. If our place is dirty and uncared for, it looks like we don't care that they come. Like, that's huge. And just taking the time to come and remember, this is your church, not my church. This is our church, right? 
come and say, hey, listen, man, we take that seriously and want to be here. So I'm going to ask you, be here on Saturday, right? It's my only day off. I will be here on Saturday, right? Because this matters. And this is how we present ourselves to the world matters. And that our facilities work for you and for your kids and for your families. This matters. So come and serve our facility. It's not mine, it's ours, right? So deacons, starting back in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, right? Similar to elders, they must be mature in their faith. And it just kind of gives a list. It's somewhat the same, right? Again, the distinction between elder and deacon is the ability to teach, right? That in the qualifications, other than gender, we'll talk about in a minute, men here that are able to teach, but men that may not be able to teach might be fit as deacons. This is what it looks like to be a mature Christian who serves in this capacity. They're servant leaders, right? So you see dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine. Some of the same things, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, this one I think has always been important to Paul because it, it goes all the way back to the first set of deacons. And so the church in its infancy, as it explodes onto the scene in Jerusalem, literally thousands by thousands are coming to faith in this city in Jerusalem. And as the church is expanding, it's growing even beyond its kind of Hebraic Jewish roots. It's including other converts to Judaism and later people that had been taken captive into other places and were coming back to Jerusalem because of their faith. And there were some language barriers, some ethnic barriers. And in Acts 6, what we see is this problem presented to the apostles and elders of the church. And it says that the Hebraic widows, the Jewish-speaking Jewish widows, were in a controversy with the Hellenist widows, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows, right? There was an ethnic divide between these two. And the apostles and the elders, they know their job is prayer and the word and, and the, the shepherding, Right? And so they look at the church, they gather the church together, imagine we're sitting here, we're like, hey, this problem keeps coming up, and they say, choose from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, blah, 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 and they raise up the first seven deacons. When I hear Paul say this, not greedy, I'm just reminded that one of the first jobs was care for the resources and distribution of the resources to those in need. So you can't be greedy. You've got to manage your household well. You can't be stingy. You need to be generous. You need to care for people. Some of these things target that moment back in Acts 6. I'll read you the next verse, verse 9. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, it seems like we're going in a different direction. But if you remember back from Ephesians what the mystery of the faith is, we're going to put it up, Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery of the faith, Paul writes about, is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's what he's saying. Jew and Gentile, members of the same local church, in the same room, at the same time. Again, they, they've, they've got to be equitable in who they are. They can't be greedy. They also have to understand the gospel is for everybody, right? Like, we have a pretty diverse church. I always say on any given Sunday, we are probably like 30% white, 30% Hispanic, 30% Asian, 10% black. That's in broad numbers, right? That ebbs and flows per week. We have diversity in age. Right? Seniors all the way down to young people. It's growing younger and younger, which is great. That's the next generation of the church for sure. 
But if we were to prioritize one age group or one ethnic group, it would be really wrong. So he's saying to the deacons, you're going to be caring for people. Can't care for this group of people over this group of people. You can't care for them, but hold back from them. You can't do that. So you can't be stingy and greedy. You also need to understand the gospel and the equity of the gospel that all are a part of the same local church, the same body is what he says. Verse 10, and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let them be tested first. It's okay to try on ministry. I know it's weird. Like you try on clothes. I mean, like you, you try and see if something fits, right? Try to understand, hey, does this work on me? Just because something looks really cool on Rob doesn't make it look cool on me. Ministry, just because it fits this person over here really well, may not be for this person, right? That ministries fit different and that it's okay to step into something and, and do a short-term kind of season with that and say, okay, this is me or this is not me, right? I'm going to try something else. It's not okay to sit on the sidelines, but it's definitely okay to try something and then go, you know what? Not a good fit, right? Like you get, I know this is more for women and me, but you try something on, you're just like, I don't know, man. I'm not sure this is me. I'm going to send it back, right? That's because I have everything online, but all right, verse 11. Now, remember what I said earlier, their wives. So I'm going to say they're women. That's a better translation of this, and I'll show you why right now. Likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, here's why I say that. Same word, translated both ways. Doesn't change. The ending doesn't change. The prefix, the suffix, it's the same exact word. Right? Not like women and wives that are similar, but not the same. It's the same word. Now, it's used 11 or 12 times, I forget, in 1 Timothy alone. But this phrase is used four times. I'm going to just read it to you. Remember last week, we were in, Acts, uh, we were in 1 Timothy 2. Likewise, also, women should be. Right? When it's talking about men should do this, and then women, likewise, women should do this. That's chapter 2, verse 9. In verse 2 today, an overseer must be. That's verse 2. Verse 8, deacons, likewise, must be. Now 11, women, likewise, must be. It is consistent with what he's saying, and here's what he's doing. He's saying that deacons are for both men and women. And this would be, if we just saw it like this, this would be hard to take all at once. You're like, okay, are you sure? Positive. We also know that Phoebe is a deacon. We know that. She's a female deacon in Rome that Paul, on, he actually, she's a female deacon he sends to Rome. Now here's the complexity. Let's put verse, uh, Romans 16 up. I commend you, our sister Phoebe, a servant. That servant is the word deacon. We just said servant leader is our definition. Same word, diakonos, right? Diakonoi in that. That, that she is our, and, she, and the word is used for deacon, right? That you may welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. She's a trusted leader that Paul sends with the message, the letter to the church in Rome, right? He opens that up. Now remember, this chapter doesn't stand in isolation. This chapter stands right after last week's chapter. If you were here last week, we went all the way back to creation and talked about how God has called men uniquely to lead in two places. We've said them both today. One, the church. Two, the home. I don't care about your workplace. I don't care who's the captain of your softball team. I don't care. Elders are men who lead in the church because first and foremost, they have proven themselves by leading in the home. 
that they shepherd their family in a way that glorifies Jesus. And that that role, and remember last week we read that verse, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of Christ is God, and the head of every woman is man, right? Like he says this, it's just in the home and elders in the church. You see, deacons are servant leaders. They don't have that role of teaching that Paul said, hey, I don't allow this in the last chapter. There he was talking about preaching, but he says, I don't allow this. The role of deacon, yes, is a leader. And, and women that we have, we have female deacons, and they are gifted. And they're amazing. We have women that are not deacons, that are super gifted, right? They do all kinds of things. We, because of Scripture, we reserve one role in the church to men, and that's elders. As God clarifies, or as Paul clarifies to the church here, what that means. And within that is embedded in the idea that they are shepherds in their own home, right? That in their house, their wife isn't the spiritual leader, that they've kind of been able to take and assume that role. And that's, again, we said that's really hard. Sometimes wives are the ones leading their husbands and their children to church, to faith. But that men would take that challenge and rise to the challenge of being spiritual leaders in our homes. In 20 years of pastoral ministry, that one thing has transformed more churches than anything else. Calling men to quit sitting on the sidelines doing nothing and step up to be leaders in their home and in the church. Nothing beyond the gospel, nothing else has been more transforming in the church. And nothing else is fought against harder in our culture than that, right? That this is so important that Paul limits it in elders and then opens it up in deacons and expands to, hey, this is what deacons should look like, and the assumption there is typically men and the women. Then he goes back, verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households as well. Now, here's how we play that out. We prefer, not limited to, but we prefer married couples here. It fits this passage, no matter how you translate that verse, whether you translate it wife or woman, right? It doesn't matter. They're women, they're wives, however you do it. But it fits our culture, too. If I've got Reggie and Marcia, and I've got this person who is in need, I've got this woman who's in need, or this man that's in need, I can call a couple, and they can respond, and, and that guards us from that guy showing up to a woman in need who may make an accusation, or from a woman showing up to a guy who's in need who may do something wrong and hurt her. We have married couples who show up, and currently, that's what we have, and we like that. It, it just sits in here really well in a way that husbands and wives can serve together. We don't limit it to that. We haven't always had that. We've had female deacons. We've had male deacons those who were either their spouses weren't or they were single. But we love having married couples serve in this capacity together. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we've had this description of or this explanation of the qualifying marks of what it looks like to be an elder and these qualifying pieces of what it looks like to be a deacon. And really what we've seen is they just present to us mature Christians, right? I mean, there's nothing really beyond that. The only real exception would be the ability to teach. But not everybody has that. Not every man has that, not every woman has that. Just there's, there's, there's a gift set that not everybody has, and that's okay. 
You can grow into that. Maybe you're calling, maybe not. That's the one thing that is listed that is different even really than the two, the elders and the deacons. Apart from gender, all the qualifications basically are the same. But yet it's put there, and it says, listen, if you desire to be an elder, you desire a noble task, a noble thing to do. It's a good idea. This is a good thing. And then it says here, when it talks about deacons, it says, listen, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. But we can read through a passage like this, written from a pastor to a pastor, right? Telling Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus, hey, this is how you organize the church so that the church is good and orderly and effective and healthy. This is what you do because that's Paul's goal is that Timothy would get the church in Ephesus together, that they would reproduce and and plant other churches and that they would continue to disciple the people in Ephesus. And this is near and dear to Paul's heart because he started the church in Ephesus and lived there for three years getting it going. So when he sends Timothy back there with the goal of establishing, rooting, grounding that church deeply so that it will live on for generation after generation, he writes, he says, listen, you must raise up these leaders. Here's the two elders and deacons. Here's what this looks like. Here's what this looks like. But I don't want you sitting here today to think, well, it's limited to that because really all this is, all these people are mature Christians. What qualification did I read today that's here that describes an elder or deacon? Man, it's the teaching thing, or men or women, doesn't matter, where you don't feel like God is calling you to that. Be sober-minded. Is that you? Is that supposed to be you? Not is that you. Don't answer that. Don't say it out loud. Are you called to be sober-minded? Are you called not to be drunks, not to be under the influence? Are you called not to love money? Are you called not to be greedy? Are you called to understand the gospel is for everyone and the gospel has an equity to it and that everybody is to be treated the same? Both everybody, meaning we all are very far away from God before Christ and all in Christ are united as one body. Is there anybody here that isn't called to that? Then why do we not strive for that? Why do we settle for mediocrity? Why do we settle for, hey, I'm forgiven and one day I'll go to heaven, but I don't do anything in the middle? And if that's you, I'm going to ask you, if, this, if, that's, if you're living in this place, I'm not sold that you understood the gospel back here that'll get you there. That this is a different understanding of the gospel, that you are called to a life that is different. And that you are called into an infancy. But the expectation is that you would grow. Like every infant in the other room, or every toddler in the other room, or every elementary school kid in the other room. Every junior high and high school kid we have in here, all our students. The expectation is they mature. It doesn't just count that they get good grades. We're not trying to teach them to math, right? We're, we're trying to teach them to grow up and be adults and mature them. And mature them in their faith. So Paul, speaking about this, as he writes to the other pastor in his later letters, Titus, he says this, and we'll put all these on the screen. Titus 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and love, and steadfastness. Sound familiar? Sounds like the qualifications of elders and deacons. But it's just men. And older doesn't mean chronologically, it means more mature. Mature men. Because if somebody comes to faith and they're 80, then they're immature in their faith. Maybe they're mature in life, 
but they're infants in Jesus. This is about spiritual maturity more than it is about age. Age can be a factor, but it's more about maturity. Same with sober-minded, dignified, self-control, all the same things we just read about. Verse 3 3 through 5 is women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good. Notice women are called to teach others what is good. Pass that on. Let me say this. If you're more mature, whether this means you're older in the room or you've been walking with Jesus for a long time or both, and you are not involved in the lives of the other people in this church, you are not doing what Jesus called you to do. That the mature in the room should be mixing with the immature in the room. right? That the older in faith should be mixing with the younger in faith. That they should be discipling them. You don't retire from Jesus. We need you. As our church grows younger and younger, we need you more and more. Look around the room as church is growing younger and younger, meaning we need you. We need you to get off the couch or off the golf course or whatever it is and invest in the younger men and younger women, right? To mature them. Verse 6, maturity in young men. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Likewise, urge the younger men. Then what does he talk to? The older men. Show them how to be a model of good works in your teaching. Show integrity and dignity. He starts to talk about what young men should look like, but then he goes back to the older men that should be teaching them. If you spend your life teaching everybody else how to do everything else, but don't teach them how to be more mature in their faith, you're missing what Jesus is calling you to. It's great that you have hobbies, but this is forever. Verse 15, he says this is, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6. Yep, it's one I just read. There we go. Train young men. Revelation 3. I want to give you this as a challenge today, and we'll close with a note. Jesus says this to the church. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Who's Jesus talking to? The church in Laodicea. The church. He's talking to the church. Not random people across the street. He's talking to the church. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. He says, that's just nasty. You make me want to vomit. That's what he says. I want Jesus ever to look at me and go, I just want to spit you out. That's what he says. If you're on the fence, you're neither hot nor cold. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but... He says, you make me want to puke. Take that in for a minute. Not me. Jesus says it. We're going to see that in a bit as he speaks to seven churches. We're going to start that book, Revelation, in four weeks, whatever it is. We're going to see what Jesus says to the churches. You want a heartbreaking one? Ephesus is about dead. The church Paul started, Timothy went and pastored. He wrote letters to three of them. It's about dead. Elders and deacons, we're going to put this on the screen. Apart from being able to teach, the requirements for church leadership are the expectations on every believer. Why don't we live like this? Why don't we live like we're being called to something? Like expectations for being more. Why don't we desire to be more than we are? More engaged in the life of the church. More mature in our faith. More understanding of the word of the gospel. Why don't we desire that like we desire other things? 
Church, the call is to mature in our faith. We're going to invest in that together, do that together over the coming year or two, and really lean into what does that look like and how do we do that together? How do we strive for all that Jesus has for us, not just some? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather. There are parts of the world where people are hiding and doing what we're doing, and we take it for granted. We know that. We know we don't value gathering together as much as we should. And we're here. We got a building. We got a we advertise on the street what we are. We get to do that because we live in this place and gives us that freedom. Let us not lose sight that there are those in the world that are underground right now hiding to worship you, and we get to do it freely. Let us treat it as such a blessing, not as a given. Let us worship and grow and be challenged in our faith, not take it for granted. For those who are more mature in their age and in their faith, God, I pray that you would stir in them right now the calling of leading other younger, less mature men and women that they would know they're not only needed, but they are called by you to do it. And that we need them. But you have called them, directed them, told them to, commanded them to. If they are capable, let them come to, and, and be a part of the life of others. For those that are younger in their faith, less mature in their faith, let them desire more. Let them find older, more mature men and women to come alongside them, to help raise them up, to teach them. Let us never forget that age and maturity are not the same thing. And for those that don't know you today, Jesus, would they hear of a God who loves them and has great anticipation for them, great things for their lives? I can't say that even without hearing those words in Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you, you say, God. Plans for prosper you, for your good, for your joy that that is what we find in you. We find our true created purpose. Help us to live into that, to be serious about that, to lead one another towards that, and to mature and desire maturity in our faith, Jesus. Let us become more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.